1781, in the days and weeks following the Battle of Yorktown, even with the war won, skirmishes and fights would continue, but a grateful nation celebrated regardless, even though we weren't yet quite so free. Lafayette managed to send correspondence to Adrian conveying the good news, and it was good news. But Washington never seemed to have a moment to allow himself to enjoy toppling giants. The next step was money. Afterwards, Lafayette was approached by Washington with a new request. Lafayette needed to return to France. The general needed him to secure a loan of 10 million livres from the French court. America was bankrupt. Lafayette had run up a few bills trying to keep his troops clothed, but the government agreed to take on the debt of 2,000 livres he had acquired. It was a gracious gift, but Lafayette knew the country would fall into ruin unless it was able to pay its debts. Lafayette would have to bid goodbye to his friends who he had been fighting alongside and leading. He would have to say goodbye to Washington as well, the man who had become his father. They would stay in touch for the rest of the future president's life. In letters, Lafayette told Washington that he knew his heart well enough to know their love for each other would never fade until they saw each other again. Lafayette departed for France from Baltimore. He was sent off with heartfelt cheers. He could barely compose himself as he gave an impassioned speech thanking the Americans for their love. With him, he carried an official letter from King Louis XVI from Congress. No one could know what they were sending their marquee back to. A powder keg. The French government was barely staying afloat. People were starving, and though Lafayette had been consumed by revolutionary fervor, he, as an aristocrat, would be swept up in the chaos, and the Americans would try to save Lafayette and his family from certain death. One revolution would beget another. This is God's Favorites, a history podcast. The Marquis de Lafayette, Episode 3. Lafayette left America at the same time as another Revolutionary War character, Benedict Arnold departed. Disgraced, he headed to London. He had expected a hero's welcome. But, instead, he was labeled a Judas. He had, after all, been the enemy of the British first, and it caused much pain and suffering. It seemed that even the Brits felt that being a turncoat was worse than a man like Jean-André who died for his principles, or even Washington who, while on the opposing side, had at least remained consistent. Lafayette returned to Paris in January where he was greeted by a fanfare that welcomed the revolutionary hero home. Despite the misery of France, many felt Lafayette to be spreading the ideals of enlightenment, though tension boiled. Adrian was not at home when he arrived. She was instead at a party at the Hotel de Ville in Paris with Marie Antoinette. Marie and Louis were celebrating the birth of their son, finally a boy, who would inherit the throne from his father. But when word arrived at the party that Lafayette was returned, the queen broke every protocol, abandoned her guest, and jumped into a carriage with Adrian, ordering the driver to take them to Lafayette. Lafayette was waiting at their mansion at Noël. He was no doubt surprised to see the queen first, who congratulated him on his victories. Then Adrian jumped out of the carriage and ran to her husband, where she fainted in his arms. Lafayette carried her indoors, where she would follow him from room to room for days, never allowing him out of her sight. 
On the second day of his return, Lafayette returned to Versailles, where he was once again greeted by a large crowd. And just like that, Lafayette became the biggest celebrity in France, which he knew that he could use to the advantage of Washington, who he continued to write frequently with updates. And as always, he made sure to include an update at the end of the letter, giving Washington the latest update on the health of his family and calling George Washington de Lafayette his grandson. My daughter and your George are well, he would write. As Lafayette tried to spend as much time with his family as possible, he eventually got back to work alongside founding father Benjamin Franklin. The two shared regard for the other, and they were both Freemasons. As such, they quickly teamed up to get as much money as Louis could spare. Lafayette quickly realized there wasn't that much. Also aware of France's precarious financial situation, Franklin wanted to ask for only $6 million. But not wanting to risk being lowballed, Lafayette quickly came up with an idea. To ensure that Franklin would get at least $6 million, Lafayette asked for double that. The king countered with $6 million levers, and Franklin left happy. As the Continental Army continued to fight in smaller battles, Lafayette had asked for more military aid as well, just to help run the remaining redcoats out of the country. It was quite clear that the Continental Army was in the lead, but there was no guarantee that King George wouldn't send more men to die to keep the colonies. This, he reasoned, Louis, was simply a matter of keeping the Americans, and by proxy the French, a few steps ahead of George. It turned out that it wouldn't be long before the House of Commons put a stop to the war in America, and in March of 1782, the British sent Richard Oswald to negotiate peace. Lafayette immediately jumped at the chance, and before Oswald had the opportunity to start talks, Lafayette insisted the British release the former president of Congress, Henry Lawrence, in exchange for Lord Cornwallis, who was detained in America. And yes, I can hear you Hamilton fans now, so let me answer the question you were about to ask. Henry Lawrence did have a son that you may know, John Lawrence. Sadly, in real life, there's no evidence that John Lawrence and Lafayette ever actually met, though they were aware of the other. Henry's son John would be killed in South Carolina, shot off the back of his horse. As Washington would write in a later letter, Lawrence was notoriously hot-tempered and occasionally put himself in dangerous situations. He had not a fault that I could ever discover, unless intrepidity bordering upon rashness could come under that denomination, Washington wrote. And though they likely never knew one another, Lafayette would have been keenly aware of the affection between Lawrence and his friends Alexander Hamilton, who wrote to tell Lafayette of Lawrence's death. You know how much I truly loved and will judge how much I regret him said Hamilton. Oswald approached Benjamin Franklin and urged him to be wary of the French and double back to the French, telling them to be wary of the Americans. In a surprising triple cross, Oswald had already sent a letter to John Adams, who was at The Hague, asking the Dutch for a loan. Oswald wanted Adams to negotiate a separate peace. Adams' dislike of the French was well-known, likely stemming back to the very shy man's time in Paris with Benjamin Franklin, who pulled him to a lot of frivolous parties. Oswald had hoped to plant a seed of doubt, but immediately had his bluff called by Lafayette, Franklin, and Adams, who, despite his dislike of the French, made it abundantly clear that they were allies. The negotiations continued on as Franklin refused to negotiate until the British recognized the Americans as independent, and Lafayette continued to ask Louis for more help, saying that King George needed some more military humiliation to bring him down to the reality that he had lost the war. 
As Britain dragged its feet, they suddenly became aware of more and more French noblemen who began volunteering to serve in America. They wanted a chance at the same glory as Lafayette. The court of popular opinion was becoming more and more clear. The rest of Europe was exhausted by centuries of existing next to Britain, and they were throwing their hats and purses behind the Americans. In turn, John Adams also received a loan from the Dutch, and, and the Dutch also agreed to acknowledge that America was an independent nation. Other complications would arise as the Spanish worried about its trade routes, even though it had joined the French in the failed plan to invade England. As negotiations dragged on, Adrian became pregnant once more. Lafayette would write to Washington about the joyous event, but it was to be a difficult birth. Prematurely, Adrian gave birth to a girl. Both mother and baby struggled to recuperate, but both came through. They named her Marie Antoinette Virginie. No stranger to long Christian names himself, Lafayette argued for an American name in which he got Virginie, or in English, Virginia, and Adrian, a Catholic, was able to put in a saint's name, Marie, while simultaneously paying tribute to the queen. He wrote about the argument over his daughter's name to Benjamin Franklin, who consoled Lafayette with the fact that he picked an excellent state name and also took the opportunity to be verbose and throw in what I think is the colonial equivalent to stand-up comedy. Oh, I hope our states will some of them new name themselves. Miss Virginia, Miss Carolina, Miss Georgiana will sound prettily enough for the girls, but Massachusetts and Connecticut are too harsh, even for the boys. Negotiations continued between the British and Americans. They wanted to reconcile and continued to try to convince Franklin, Adams, and John Jay not to trust the French. It was much easier to sway Adams and Jay. Neither were a fan of French manners. Franklin, on the other hand, was something of a celebrity amongst the French, and he would hear none of it. Lafayette rejoined the military, and with the assistance of the Comte de Virgin, was able to persuade the Spanish to help. France was unable to provide America the money it needed. The loan from the Dutch, while helpful, was not nearly enough, and France found themselves as the supportive friend of America while they went through their divorce with Britain. Flipping Spain was easier than the French thought. All it took Virgin doing was pointing out that Spain could expand its ports and lands in the Americas more freely if the coast was mostly empty of British ships. Lafayette discussed dreams of ripping Canada out of the British hands as well to make Washington's 14th state. But fate had different plans. Lafayette, named second-in-command to Virgin, traveled to Spain to help join up with the Spanish and get ready to go. But it was there, in Spain, that Lafayette learned the British had finally surrendered. America was free. Spain pouted and showed no signs of accepting the U.S. as a sovereign nation. They even refused to speak to the Lafayette at court, and he was not granted leave to go back to the United States, so he had to send a letter to Washington. What a sense of pride and satisfaction I feel when I think of the times that have determined my engaging in the American cause. Lafayette had plans for America. Despite Washington owning slaves, he hoped to convince him and others to open a portion of land where he hoped to build a community of freed former slaves, though his friends were clearly benefiting from the practice on their plantations. Lafayette somewhat foolishly expected the Masonic principles he shared with a lot of the founding fathers to convince them to give up the practice. While Washington agreed with Lafayette and said the move showed kindness on his part, he and really no one else was willing to give up the institution of slavery. 
Lafayette had finally managed to soften Spain into an ally, but John Adams became incensed that the Frenchman had taken over control of diplomatic relations with the country. Adams berated Lafayette for acting on behalf of the new government, and while Adams came from a place of needing to assert control of the new country, Lafayette was stunned and hurt. He had taken care of John and Abigail Adams while the pair were in Paris. Even he and Franklin fell out, and now Washington did not heed Lafayette's urging to free the slaves. Though it may have affected his view of his friends, Lafayette still believed in the American cause. They would always have his back, he was certain. He was certain. But France was suffering. Many were outraged at the high spending of the royal family, and a king who, instead of feeding his people, was handing money over to the Americans. Lafayette's extended surviving family were still in his childhood home in Chavignac. Upon a visit, he noticed a horde of hungry, starving people at the rotting gates of the chateau. They saw him approach and began pleading for anything. Money, food, work. They were filthy. They were sick. Crop failures meant that many had not eaten in days. It was a bit of a wake-up call for Lafayette. Inside, he urged his family to share grain supplies from their family's stock, and one of the advisors cautioned him that the price was too high and that they should ration it out. Lafayette disagreed and began distributing the food to those outside. I will argue Lafayette had a good heart. He was young, idealistic, but the fact that he had grown up so privileged separated him from reality. He was naive and wealthy. The silver spoon had fed him, and as such, there was always a part of Lafayette that just seemed slightly out of touch with the common man. With his actions, he ended the grain shortage locally and became a reluctant social justice warrior. His popularity was higher than it had ever been, and upon his return to Paris, he was given the French military's highest honor, the Cross of Saint-Louis. He worked on negotiating trade between Americans who could now sell their goods for the first time ever overseas, and finally, he took his wife on a small vacation to his childhood home. He took Adrian to the woods where he hunted for beasts as a child and showed her where he had spent his early years. The couple was more in love than ever. That does not mean that Lafayette was faithful. Oh, he adored Adrian, his wife and partner, but it was somewhat normal for a man to tiptoe outside the marriage then. In many cases, it was almost celebrated by the aristocracy. As the pair enjoyed their holiday, the sun would set on this most happy time. The next few years would spiral out of control. Lafayette's home featured a rotating cast of characters as well as portraits of American friends resembling a shrine almost. He and his wife begged Martha and George Washington to visit, but they were growing older and had to decline. Lafayette made a brief visit to New York and then made his way to his adopted family and his father, George Washington. Resting at Mount Vernon, the two would ride around the farm, go on walks, and laugh over dinner. After four days of joyous company with the Washington family, Lafayette had to leave. Martha bid him farewell, but Washington couldn't bring himself to say goodbye just yet. He instead decided to accompany him to New York for more time. The pair made a brief stop in Annapolis, Maryland, where a celebration was held for him, and what a surprise it must have been when you were only expecting Lafayette to show up and alongside him rides George Washington. It was a blur of food and drink as the pair celebrated, but Washington quickly tired. 
He had to abandon his plans to take Lafayette to New York. He blamed fatigue. So it was Annapolis where the two said goodbye. Washington hugged his son and teared up and bravely sent him on his way. In New York, before his departure, he received a letter from Washington. It read that he was afraid that it would be the last time the two of them would meet, acknowledging his advanced age. Lafayette hurriedly wrote back and rebuffed the ideal to Washington. But it was sadly true. George Washington and Lafayette would never meet in person again. Lafayette sailed back to France. Tensions were continuing to escalate as the royal family continued to spend money as the poor continued to starve. France at this time was divided into three estates. The first estate was the clergy. The second estate was the nobles. And the third estate was everybody else. The national debt was rising and the king called a meeting of the notables, of which Lafayette was a part. Lafayette wrote to Washington that the group should have been named the Notables instead of the Notables because they were, frankly, not able to do anything. They tried to discuss solutions, but they always seemed to draw the lines when their wealth was affected. On February 22, 1787, the king called a convocation of the Estates General, and it soon turned into a daily brawl. Thomas Jefferson, who was observing, noted that the resentment toward the king and the hypocrisy of the clergy spending money constantly devolved into very long debates. In the meantime, a young lawyer named Maximilien Robespierre incited crowds of the Third Estate demanding the French stop taxing food. At the common denominator of most revolutions, you will find one thing. Hunger. The mobs began forming daily around Versailles with people screaming for food and demanding change. Lafayette, who many had called a savior as he distributed his own grain to paupers, began to be smeared. In an effort to keep calm, Lafayette had wanted those causing disturbances to be arrested. But he did not know how dangerous Robespierre would prove. Pamphlets called Lafayette pro-royalty and he watched as the parties in favor of reform slowly began separating themselves from an angrier mob. In the meantime, he was also raising the ire of the king. In the brewings of a storm, Lafayette was in the middle, and the middle proved a dangerous place to be. The mob wanted change, and the royals wanted to keep their money, and when someone attempted to blame the American Revolution for the country's struggles, Lafayette fought back. He was being urged to pick a side, and so Lafayette pitched something that he knew would forever damage him to Louis. But he thought it might appease the growing tension of the mob. Instead of the Estates General, Lafayette implored, why did they not form a national assembly? There was a long gasp, followed by uncomfortable silence. It felt tantamount to treason for the nobles. It would be a congress giving the people more control over the government. The clergy was horrified. Lafayette wanted to take the power and give it instead to the poor, and while it was a move in the direction of becoming a republic, it still did not appease Robespierre, because Robespierre was out for blood. As the government tried to raise taxes, they found themselves faced with people who refused to pay. Lafayette found himself distrusted on both sides of the aisle, but he never thought for a second it would amount to anything. France then began printing more money to pay debts, resulting in the economy continuing to crash as prices skyrocketed. Gossipy newsletters began putting the blame solely at the feet of Marie Antoinette, now dubbed as Madame de Deficit. 
due to her apparent shopping addiction and gambling addictions. History now makes us realize that her story was slightly more complicated, and she was a convenient scapegoat for Louis. As the National Assembly prepared to meet for the first time, they arrived to find a ring of troops blocking the doors. In a move that quite literally felt like semantics at play, it appeared Louis had believed that if the room was not available for this assembly, then they could not assemble. But the group found an open tennis court, and they took an oath there to the National Assembly of France. They were going to save their country with or without the king's approval. Meanwhile, Lafayette stayed at home writing furiously. Inspired by the Enlightenment from Thomas Jefferson, Lafayette had created a document and was adding the finishing touches. And thus, the Declaration of the Rights of Man and Citizen, France's answer to the Declaration of Independence, was created. Uh, But Lafayette would soon learn that keeping one foot in the revolution and the other in aristocracy would be impossible. He had been warned by both Jefferson and Washington that he was lighting a match, dangerously close to a flammable substance. Lafayette's declaration was adopted on July 11, 1789. And just three days later, on the 14th, France's revolution would ignite in a powder keg explosion. A group of revolutionaries stormed into the Bastille prison. There weren't many prisoners inside, seven to be exact, though the narrative is sometimes spun to indicate that they were intent on freeing political inmates. But the long and short answer is that they wanted guns and the prison housed a full arsenal. Lafayette was in support of a government for the people, by the people, but he also hoped to quash angry mobs, seeing them as more detrimental than helpful. He had been named head of the National Guard, and he did send the key to the Bastille to George Washington. It remains inside Mount Vernon to this day. But Lafayette's fall from favor would come swiftly. Louis XVI was starting to realize that the people weren't just rioting. They planned to forcibly remove the king and install the new government. In an effort to placate the revolutionaries, Louis ordered his troops to stand down as he worked with the National Assembly, and he advised that he would commit to criminal reform as well as pass tax authority onto the Assembly. And while it was a move in the right direction, it was far too late to appease the Jacobins. Lafayette was placed in a poor position of having to placate the mobs, his contemporaries, and the royal family. It made his life a living hell. The minute I am gone, he wrote, they lose their minds. On October 5th, a group of angry women marched through Paris demanding bread. They carried with them muskets and swords. The price of grain had continued to rise, and they numbered in the thousands. Lafayette assembled his guards to keep the women safe, but also to defuse a tense situation. They marched to Versailles, where he spoke with the king and queen, urging them to speak with the mob. Most of the marchers just wanted the king and queen to return with them to Paris. Others wanted more violent retribution. After Louis spoke to the crowd and acquiesced to their demands, it appeared as if some of the restless crowd had been calm, but in the overnight hours, several breached the walls of Versailles. Two guards were killed and their heads were placed on spikes, and it was Lafayette who sprung into action first, keeping Marie Antoinette safe. It was the first of two perceived missteps by Lafayette that would end with Robespierre and others calling for his head. On October 6th, the royal family would leave Versailles for the last time. They would never return. Lafayette's second misstep came in July of 1791. 
A group of protesters in the Champ de Mars demanded the abdication of Louis XVI. Lafayette's troops fired into the crowd, killing and wounding at least 50 people. The tide of public opinion turned. He was no longer a hero of democracy and revolution. He was an extended arm of the monarchy. He offered his resignation and returned to military service as the commander of France's army. The military was engaged on all fronts in addition to the strains of the revolution. And Robespierre wanted Lafayette's head. And he probably would have succeeded, but Lafayette realized what was happening. He arranged for a new command of his troops. And as soon as that was in place, Lafayette defected to Austria, counting on his American friends to save Adrian and his children. Adrian and her two daughters were immediately put on house arrest, but Lafayette's son went into hiding with his tutor. Lafayette sent a letter to the city of Sedan where he had been stationed, explaining his decision to leave them under new control. Since my presence among you will serve only to compromise you, I must spare the city of Sedan the troubles of which I would be the cause. The governor of the Austrian Netherlands accepted the defection, but because Lafayette had been his enemy, he was immediately taken into custody, where he would remain. He wrote to Adrian explaining that he had hoped to make his way to America and secure passage for the rest of his family, but now he was a prisoner. Lafayette wrote letters to the nearest American representative, William Short, in the Netherlands, but nothing came of it. America was still fragile, and they were tiptoeing in Europe to avoid angering the French. And he came to the horrible realization. Lafayette had been abandoned by the people he had given everything to. Washington worked to send Adrian money and his best wishes, but little else. America was too fragile, too new. They had to remain impartial, at least on the surface. Covertly, small things began quietly happening behind the scenes. Nevertheless, Lafayette surely felt abandoned as he could not pay for small comforts and care. Finally, some relief came in the form of a small relief payment from the Americans. It was only 10,000 florins, but it was enough to provide some comfort. In the meantime, a man named Eric Bowman was sent to Olmutz and began smuggling messages to Lafayette. Bowman, an adventurer and physician, came to Olmutz under the guise of being hired as a doctor to ascertain the condition of the Marquis. Lafayette eventually learned that Bowman had been commissioned to aid in his escape, thanks in part to a one, Angelica Schuyler Church. Alexander Hamilton's sister-in-law was working to break Lafayette out of prison. And though it did appear that Lafayette had made it successfully outside of the prison walls, the plan was discovered and he was recaptured. Years later, he would write Angelica thanking her for her brilliant attempt. Meanwhile, local government officials began looking at Lafayette's family's properties and their current home. They took everything valuable they could find. Very little of it would ever be returned. Adrian and the children were terrified. Lafayette had purchased a plantation in Cayenne and intended to free all the slaves that he had hired, but he had not been fast enough, and they were confiscated by the government. Adrian, horrified, sat on house arrest and begged the revolutionaries to at least free the slaves, but she was ignored. And then she learned that Robespierre planned to remove France from the hold of the aristocrats by removing the heads of the aristocrats. 
The Committee of Public Safety, Robespierre's answer to France's government, had brought in the guillotine to purge France of traitors, but Robespierre and his contemporary Marat had inconsistent definitions of what defined a traitor. Mostly, Robespierre meant that to mean anybody who disagreed with him. That included some of his closest friends and colleagues. Immediately, Adrian's mother and sister were placed under arrest and were quickly guillotined. In July of 1794, Adrian was taken to Paris, and she began to grow hopeless. But Lafayette's friends immediately swung into action, working to get Adrian and others out of the country. Washington, who for the most part had stayed out of the fray, immediately put pen to paper to protest Lafayette's exile and demanded the safety of his family as a personal favor. Fellow founding father Governor Morris loudly advocated for the release of Lafayette's wife and daughters. Morris didn't receive a reply, but amazingly, Adrienne and her daughters were freed in 1795. As for Robespierre... In 1794, his reign came to a screeching halt when people slowly realized that he was becoming more and more unhinged. As people stormed in to arrest him, he shot himself in the mouth. It did not kill him. Rather, it blew off most of his jaw. He was taped up and marched to the guillotine. The story goes that the executioner ripped the bandage off, allowing his jaw to fall to the floor. Robespierre screamed loudly as the National Razor took his head, sending off the madman to meet his maker in anguish. Plans were also underway to help Lafayette's son escape. He had been in hiding with his tutor, and that same year, he and his tutor were allowed to come to the United States, where he ended up in Virginia. He would stay at Mount Vernon and finish his education abroad at Harvard. Adrian knew the imprisonment of Lafayette's family had caused significant backlash against the Committee of Public Safety. With passports in hand, Adrian came up with a plan to force the hand of the Austrians. If her capture had backfired for the French, it could also backfire against the Austrians, so Lafayette's wife and daughters asked to be put in jail with Lafayette. And there they remained, together for the first time in years. With Robespierre out of the picture... America became more vocal about the treatment of Lafayette, and he wrote to support his freedom. It became something of a cause célèbre. The newly founded directory, the new form of government following the failed Committee of Public Safety, knew that they would likely have to do something lest they damage their very fragile relationship with the United States. It seemed as though they had little control. After all, Lafayette was in prison in Austria, and France was still at war with Austria. It was finally in 1797 that the directory decided that they had no one else to turn to. In a letter to their leader, the president of the directory asked for advice on what they could do to release Lafayette and his family as it was becoming something of a distraction. The letter was open and read, annoying its recipient. He had higher ambitions and didn't want to deal with the headache of freeing a revolutionary who would most likely pose a threat to his own success. But relationships with America were souring. The recipient of the letter had little to no chance. He was going to have to work out something to free Lafayette. And he knew that could either turn public opinion in his favor or work against him later down the line. Thus, the wheels began turning. And within a month, Lafayette and his wife and two daughters walked out of the front of Olmutz. As for the mystery recipient of the letter... You may now address him as General Bonaparte, but later, 
You may call him Emperor. God's Favorites is a bi-weekly history podcast produced by me, Melissa. Sources for today's episode include Lafayette, a book by Harlow Giles Unger, Hero of Two Worlds by Mike Duncan, HeritageHistory.com, AmericanHeritage.com. Thank you to everyone who donates to Patreon. We use the site to buy books and pay for streaming services and music licenses on the podcast. Join us in two weeks, and you know I'm excited about this one, when Napoleon Bonaparte rides into town and makes Lafayette's life a lot harder. Happy holidays to everyone. Thank you for being part of the History Talk family. See you next time, friends.